Welcome to SCOTUScast, a project of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy Studies. Our contributors join us from around the country to bring you expert commentary on U.S. Supreme Court cases as they are argued and decisions are issued. The Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. Hello and welcome to SCOTUScast. I'm your host, Justin Drewer, on behalf of the Faculty Division of the Federalist Society. We're here today to discuss Axon Enterprise Incorporated, the Federal Trade Commission, which was argued before the court on November 7th. It's my honor to introduce our moderator, Svetlana Gans, a partner at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, who will introduce our panelists. Thank you all for joining us. I first wanted to introduce our amazing panelists and then um, talk a little bit about the case and answer uh, some questions that we prepared. Uh, so with that, I'll uh, get started. Um, our panelists today are Ron Cass, who's Dean Emeritus of the Boston University School of Law and President of Cass and Associates. He is also Senior Fellow at the C. Borden Gray Center for the Study of Administrative State. He is a member of the Council of the Administrative Conference of the United States and has received several presidential appointments spanning Presidents Ronald Reagan to Donald J. Trump. As a law professor, lecturer, and scholar, Dean Cass has been teaching and writing about a wide array of legal issues on topics such as administrative law and regulation, antitrust, and constitutional law. He has published more than 140 scholarly books, chapters, articles, and papers, including a leading casebook on administrative law. Dean Cass, thank you so much for being here. Next, we have Henry Sue. He is a partner at the law firm of Bradley, Arendt, Bolt, and Cummings. He has more than 20 years of experience litigating disputes involving antitrust, intellectual property, and technology. His background includes more than six years at the Federal Trade Commission, where he and I were colleagues. Um, during his time at the FTC, he held several senior leadership positions, including trial lawyer in the Bureau of Competitions Litigation Group, which is a specialized unit responsible for litigating anti-competitive mergers and acquisitions. He also served as an attorney advisor to Commissioner Roche, as well as to Chair Ramirez. So Henry, thanks so much for being here. Uh, next, we have Ashley Baker, who is the Director of Public Policy at the Committee for Justice. Her focus areas include the Supreme Court, technology and regulatory policy, as well as judicial nominations. Her writings have appeared in Fox News, USA Today, Boston Globe, The Hill, among many others. Ashley is an active member of the Federalist Society, where she serves as a member of the Regulatory Transparency Project Cyber and Privacy Working Groups, as well as other uh, affiliations of FedSoc. Ashley has worked closely on the efforts to confirm Justices Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, during the Kavanaugh confirmation in particular, she wrote extensively on his record as a federal judge on the DC circuit, focusing on administrative law and free speech. Ashley, thanks so much for being here. All right, so with that introduction, I would like to dive into the case that we will be discussing today, Axon versus Federal Trade Commission. 
The issue before the court is whether the, a party subject to an agency administrative proceeding here, Exxon, has a right to sue constitutional challenges to the agency in federal district court prior to the conclusion of an agency administrative proceeding. This case arises from Axon's acquisition of a small competitor in 2020. The FTC began investigating this transaction. After an 18-month antitrust investigation, Axon offered to divest the acquired assets and walk away from the transaction. The FTC rejected this offer and proposed an alternative settlement, which Axon refused. Rather than agreeing to the settlement, Axon sued the FTC in federal district court in Arizona. Axon challenged the DOJ and FTC clearance process and the FTC administrative law judge's authority to preside over the administrative case, given their so-called impermissible dual layer of cause removal restrictions and the constitutionality of the FTC structure, which Axon claimed violated the Fifth Amendment due process by combining investigative, prosecutorial, adjudicative, and appellate functions, which according to Axon has resulted in a 25-year win streak in its administrative court. The district court dismissed Axon's complaint for lack of subject matter jurisdiction and denied Axon's motion for preliminary injunction as moved. On appeal, the Ninth Circuit in a two-to-one decision um, in a three-judge panel affirmed the district court's decision. The Ninth Circuit held that Axon must wait until exhausting the administrative process at the FTC to have its day in federal court. However, the majority opinion emphasized that Axon's serious concerns about how the FTC operates, quote unquote, should not be discounted. After the Ninth Circuit denied Axon's petition for rehearing in Bonk, uh, Axon appealed to the US Supreme Court presenting both jurisdictional and constitutional questions. The Supreme Court denied to take up the constitutional issues related to the FTC structure and procedures, but granted the cert only as to the jurisdictional question. So fast forward and we here we are. Um, I wanted to turn to Ashley and Henry to discuss please the key um, legal arguments presented at the Supreme Court. Um, Ashley, I could start with you please. Sure. Um, thank you. And thank you for hosting Solana and thank you um, to the Federal Society for having us all here today. Um, so the, uh, as Solana had just mentioned, the question that's actually before the court currently is a pretty narrow one. Um, they declined to take up review on the, the broader questions regarding the um, structure of the um, agency and the ALJ question, but did grant the jurisdiction stripping question um, about whether or not essentially the um, numeral rules under sec section 1331 apply, um, which gives jurisdiction to federal courts and appealing um um, cease and desist orders. Um, but sorry, it, it gives uh, it gives rules to um, the um, federal courts for appeals. And then there's the FTC Act. Um, specifically under the FTC Act, um, you have the provision that gives um, for the cease and desist orders. Um, and they, they go to courts of appeals instead of to federal district courts. So, you know, the case is really about, um, or the narrow question, at least, that's being presented is really about whether or not those normal rules of procedure apply um, or whether there's some sort of an exception because of the language of the FTC Act that um, discusses the agency's um, jurisdiction in hearing these sorts of claims. Um, you know, one side of that argument is is no, and also ALGs can't. Um, it, it would 
a bit stacked for ALGs to hear the constitutional claim against them to begin with, but also that is the proper role of a federal courts of appeals to decide you know, what do agencies do, what can agencies do under the constitution. The agency can't really decide that by design. So that's kind of the core of the first argument. I mean, there's a lot of various um, arguments in here and a lot of various moving pieces outside of it. So I'm going to actually stop there um, and then we can keep, keep going and discuss the broader circumstances surrounding the case. Great. Thanks so much, Ashley. Henry, do anything to add in terms of the questions presented um, for the Supreme Court? Sure. So first of all, thank you, Svetlana and the Federalist Society for having me today. Um, so to answer your question, I guess, and this is something that comes up in, you know, the colloquy with the justices is sort of what's the source, right? What's the argument for uh, jurisdiction as it did? Do we just look at the text of Section 5 of the FTC Act, Section 1331, you know, Section 704. Is that how we answer this or is there something else? And, you know, obviously, obviously, Axon took the position, well, there's nothing in the text that says one way or the other. So let's look instead, look at these so-called Thunder Basin factors, which uh, were also, you know, more recently applied in another case called Free Enterprise. And under the, those three factors, we win. We don't, if we wait, we don't get meaningful review. What our challenge is collateral to uh, the agency, you know, uh, adjudication, and then last but not least, um, you know, um, sorry, I'm just blanking on the last one. And oh yeah, and and then the the claims that we're bringing are outside the agency's expertise. So that's really you know Axon's argument, and you know the Solicitor General came back and said, well, no, actually we answer this from the statute and specifically from the Administrative Procedure Act, you know, under 704, which says that, look, when you're in this special agency adjudication environment, the only way you get judicial review is after you get a final agency action, and then that goes to a court of appeals. So that's kind of what I would add to that. Okay, great. Um, Dean Cass, anything from you on just the questions presented? Well, the, the great thing about listening to this argument is it's like you're at a um, an oral version of a final exam in Fed court, because what a lot of the back and forth is between the attorneys and the justices is about particular cases, how the cases apply, what they, the uh, what the margins are along which you can push on this or that. But the the big issue here is whether there is something different about this case from the sort of cases where the uh, where the, the plaintiffs have been told you have to wait, you have to wait, you can't bring this yet. And the argument by Paul Clement, who is arguing on behalf of Axon, is yes, this is different. It's different because what I'm looking for here is relief that the agency can't give. The agency can't give it in part because it involves a statute outside the agency's purview. And the agency can't give it because essentially it would involve having to reconstitute at least part of the agency, part of the personnel there in ways that the agency is unlikely to have any inclination to do or any ability to do. So those are the sort of big issues that are teed up on front in the case. Thank you all for that. So in terms of the, the questioning from the justices, uh, maybe uh, we could start with Henry and then Ashley and, and Dean Katz. Any any um, 
Q&A that struck you or that particularly interested, uh, interesting to you in terms of where the court might be heading in this case? Henry, I'll turn it over to you first. Thank you. So kind of picking up on Dean Cass's you know, point, right? I mean, this really was like a federal court's exam. And so many of the recurring questions were, were about that standard. Where do we, where do we, how do we come to the result you want? Is it just a textual argument looking at section five, looking at section 704, looking at 1331, or do we apply Thunder Basin? Uh, and if so, if it's Thunder Basin, how do they come out? You know, do you have to, do you have to win all of, of all of the factors or not? Um, so, you know, there, there was, that was kind of a recurring you know, theme in the argument is what's the source? How do we, how do we, you know, you know, operationalize this standard and, and, and make it so that it's not just about your case, but it's about other people who may have, you know, grievances with the, you know, with the, the way an agency is constituted or the way it run, runs things. So I'll add to that, I mean, in, in terms of you know, what some of the individual justices focused on um, and, and the questions they asked, and Henry's you know, absolutely right, it was mostly about you know, whether or not you have to meet those factors, or is this a straightforward application, um, just looking at Section 5, just looking at Section 1331. For Justice Gorsuch specifically, he thought that it, you know, 1331 itself um, was enough for like, to resolve this, it seemed like, um, in his question, he was asking, you know, why not um, you know, Congress was silent on the rest of this. Why do we not apply the um, usual rules of federal jurisdiction here? Um, Roberts and also, well, a couple of the justices all brought up Free Enterprise Fund. Um, there are obviously several issues that are relevant here um, that are at the heart of Free Enterprise Fund, but particularly just that, um, you know, how how is this similar to the circumstances there and how is it similar to what the court said regarding um judicial review um, provisions in a statute that was very much similar. And it said the text does not expressly limit the jurisdiction that other statutes confer on district courts, nor does it do so implicitly, so too here. Um, I, I think the first justice to really kind of cut to the chase with that question um, right at the beginning was Justice Thomas, who is definitely a, a recurring theme, and, and it's notable to just, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the um, majority opinion in in that case. Um, and actually, he adopted a lot of the reasoning from a dissent that Justice or then Judge Kavanaugh wrote on the DC circuits um, in this case as well. But it was also notable too that a lot of the back and forth between the justices was do we even need to get to Thunder Basin? Um, it wasn't, you know, does, you know, is, does this strip them of jurisdiction? Does this strip federal courts of jurisdiction here? Um, it was actually kind of, you know, a step, which we consider that a step higher, a step lower. It was, um, didn't even quite reach that question. So they seem pretty decided about, you know, what's in the text of 1331 and that the FTC Act does not um, take jurisdiction away from federal courts here. You know, I, I do think that uh, some of the justice signaled uh, to the extent you can take things away from oral argument, uh, a concern about the degree to which they were going to allow interference with the usual agency process going all the way through. Certainly, uh, Justice Kagan uh, repeatedly came back to other analogies, other issues, other uh, settings in which you might be seeking uh, review of an issue along the way. Uh, some of the other justices were more concerned about the broader questions that underlie the case, which weren't, uh, the cert, cert was not granted at this point on those questions, 
but they clearly were in the minds of some of the justices, Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch, uh, seemed to be asking questions that showed attention to those, concern about the importance of those issues. And that does tie in with what the court has been doing in a series of other cases. I mean, we, we can talk about those other cases later, but I think there was certainly a questioning that showed concern about cutting off uh, access to the courts for resolution of those and prolonging it. And the fact that in this case, you've already had the uh, the plaintiff here spend $20 million going back and forth with the FTC. It's not as though you just pay for a $5 entrance fee and then get the FTC's process. It's a long, involved, expensive process, and it is very burdensome on companies that want to actually move on and get something done. If I could yeah. just... Just to add to that, you know, I, another justice who kind of was worried about whether these types of actions would in, in essentially be tantamount to, you know, to a district judge managing what's going on with the, you know, inside the agency was uh, Justice Jackson. She, she used the word superintend a couple of times. So, so definitely that's, you know, on, on the side favoring the government, there's that concern. But then on the side, on the side favoring Axon, there's the point, well, look, these are very weighty constitutional questions. Why not? What What's the argument against getting them addressed up front ahead of time? So. Yeah. And, and on that note, I found it uh, telling the, the um, Solicitor General, um, he, he seemed to concede that the FTC couldn't make the decision anyway on the merits as to the constitutionality of the process and the appointments of the ALJ. And rather that it would be, they would uh, inform um, other decision makers on kind of the process and the procedure, but not necessarily take that up um, and make a decision on the merits. I thought that was interesting, especially given the overlay between DOJ and FTC jurisdiction on the, on the merger side and how there is kind of a lack of transparency and uh, perhaps some uh, perceived due process um, issues with kind of the coin toss that happens with respect to jurisdiction on the antitrust merger side. Um, so very, um, very helpful discussion. I wanted to ask a related question as to the Standard Oil case that was raised a few times in the oral argument, um, where um, the argument was made that um, Standard Oil stands for the proposition that a litigant can, um, can um, uh, wait until the very end and then go to district court after the, the administrative procedure is done. So Dean Cass, any any um, thoughts on the Standard Oil case and how that plays into the analysis here? Standard Oil involved a very different sort of issue. It involved an issue that was really integral to the case and the decision that the FTC was making. Uh, in this case, you have an, it's a set of issues that are raised that are entirely outside what the FTC is going to go and look at in its proceeding. And that I think was the, the core of the argument that was being made about Standard Oil by Paul Clement. It really was that Standard Oil doesn't apply in a case like this. All of the reasons in Standard Oil for waiting, letting the process go forward, letting them grapple with the issues, grapple with the arguments are missing here because there is nothing the agency has to really add to this. Uh, I mean, they can offer their thoughts about it, but they don't have expertise 
on the sort of issues that are being raised about the constitutionality of the structure. They don't have something to argue that it, nothing of what is being argued here is specific to the claims being made by Axum. Nothing is specific to the particular issues that would be before the FTC if the case went forward. And I think that that is a compelling argument. I understand why justices are concerned about interrupting the process, why justices are worried about letting claims go forward that might not need to be addressed. I, I think in a case like this, though, when you have a very long, very costly, very drawn out process, which has repeated parts of it, and, and don't forget here, Axon offered to drop the entire acquisition that started the case, and the FTC said, no, you can't even, we won't even let you not do what you started to do. Uh, you can't either go forward or go backward. You just have to stick with us so we can smack you around a bit. I mean, that, that does give a different flavor to the case than you had in the Standard Oil case, which again, we're looking back 42 years ago to Standard Oil. So it may be even if that case came up today, you wouldn't get the same answer, but clearly it involves a different scenario. Oh, I, I was just to say, Axon's complaint about the FTC was never that its proceedings are too costly and annoying. I mean, that is obviously a really big problem. And I, I would agree with um, them that um, it keeps, um, that is a barrier to meaningful judicial review, which has to be prompt because a lot of these companies don't make it to the end of these part three processes. Um, a lot of them can't make it through there. I think at one point um, when the justices asked how many, what percentage of cases were settled, um, which I think makes that point pretty pretty well, but I did see until um, this morning, so Axon's um, reply brief in the petition stage, um, it had this great couple of lines, I think are the a really good counter argument, um, or as best as you can make it to the um, standard oil argument, which it says um, that the government dismisses this, you know, the expense and annoyance of litigation as simply, quote unquote, part of the social burden of living under government. That is a that is an argument only the government can love. It only misses. It also misses the point, which I, I think really sums it up. I mean, it's not really even relevant here necessarily because I mean that was never Axon's um, argument to begin with. Henry, any any uh, kind of responses or thoughts from you on the Standard Oil case or just process at the FTC generally? Yeah, no, I, I would agree with Dean Cass that I don't think Standard Oil is really, you know, it's not on all fours. I mean, it is an APA case. It stands for the very simple proposition that a decision to prosecute is not a final agency action. And so while you may have complaints about the product of that decision, for instance, maybe there was internal argument among the staff about the theories, you know, that's all going to come out in your litigation. It's all going to come out at the hearing. And so you can challenge those kinds of, you know, defects, you know, as part of the, you know, petition for review to a, a circuit court. Uh, but that's not this. That's not what this is about. Now, I, I do have some points I want to make about the FTC uniquely, and I can kind of push them towards the end or. No, go ahead. That's, that's fine. Something. Yeah. So, so one thing I will say about the you know, the double cause removal claim is that it actually is easily fixed by the commission, okay? So yes, the commission has no power to interpret, a, a, an a, you know, a, a statute governing ALJs, 
but it can easily substitute a commissioner as the presiding officer, you know, replacing the ALJ, right? And the commissioner himself, herself, under Humphreys would be constitutionally legitimate. And so that would have been easily solved. And in fact, there's a, there's a recent example involving my former boss, Tom Rush. He was actually designated by the commission to be the hearing officer, the judge, if you will, in the Inova Health Prince Williams merger litigation. So it can be done. It could have been done here to avoid this argument about the, you know, the double cause removal. It, it, it is, however, uh, let me speak as a former commissioner of a different agency. Um, it, it, it is a costly way of fixing the problem to substitute commissioners uh, doing this. Not only that, when you have, and, and the FDC is a good example right now, mm -hmm. there, there are some tensions within the, the ranks of commissioners and um, different viewpoints. And so the, the process of selecting one to overhear this uh, is not without its own costs and problems. I, I think it is more likely that the fix is going to end up being changing the terms under which ALJs serve and changing them in a way that is very different than ALJs have been, been arguing for uh, over the last 50 or 60 years. Um, so I, I think that while it, you're absolutely right, it is possible. I think it is both costly enough and fractious enough to be unlikely. Yeah, I, I agree with you that it, it is kicking the can down the road, right? It's, it's still going to have to be dealt with at some point. But I think if we're talking about statutes, right, if we're talking about Section 5, Section 5 makes no mention of administrative law judges. The decision maker is the constitutionally legitimate commission. And it is the commission's order that actually ultimately gets reviewed by a circuit court. And so, you know, yes, we, we've kind of introduced this extra layer of the, of the ALJ through the commission's rules of practice, but I think, you know, under its rules of practice and under 556B2, it's, I think it's easily cured, at least for the time being. Not, obviously not, not forever, but, but I think that could have been done. So I, I would just add, you know, I, I think Henry's point is there are ways of dealing with this here. There are ways that the FTC can deal with it. I think in the broader sense of the issues that are being raised to the courts, and that are being looked at by the Supreme Court. And don't, you know, don't forget, this is part of a series of cases the court has been looking at uh, to ask whether agency organization, agency structure, agency procedures are constitutional. In that framework, I think we're going to keep coming back to issues like this. And the question isn't, can we get a fix right now? Um, and you're quite right on, on that. But is there an underlying problem how do we address the problem? Uh, to be sure, the court didn't grant cert on that yet in this case. They, they in fact, consciously decided to take up the procedural issue here instead of that. But I think that issue is definitely coming back and the court can see it returning. So that, that's the question 
that Axon wants to put on the table, that's the one they want to get answered. And that's the one that the FTC can't come up with a really uh, easy answer to. And, and indeed, I mean, that's what Chief Justice Roberts pushed well, Malcolm, Malcolm Stewart is why wait? Why do you want to, you know, hide under a rock and not deal with this directly? And that one quick last point about, you know, what happened in the arguments itself too, and that kind of goes to, to Henry's um, previous point too. So there was an interesting question and, and some also similar questions down the road from Justice Sotomayor that um, seems to frame this, and, and the government did this too, as if the agency is getting some sort of, uh, or sorry, as if Axon is getting some sort of exception here to the normal well, I, I think what Justice Sotomayor said was, um, you know, due process is about going through the process or, or something of that sort. But I mean, going through the normal process wouldn't be this process. Um, and they, there's, it's interesting because I mean, I see uh, meaningful judicial review and due process as being very much hand in hand. Um, and they seem to very much see it differently. Yep. Kind of just going to one other question presented at the oral argument, and then um, I want to get your predictions on on the future because everyone likes to 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 get that. Um, one other kind of line of questioning was whether or not this might open the floodgates to more um, challenges of agencies, constitutional challenges before agencies, and could potentially open the floodgates to to challenges. And wanting to get kind of each of your views, whether that's a legitimate concern um, or how the how you think the court will deal with this issue when they analyze the case. Um, Ashley, I guess I'll start with you, and then um, Dean Cass and Henry. Sure. I, so in terms of making predictions, which yes, of course, is what everyone wants, but even, so I like to say that with Supreme Court decisions, you know, even those of us who are um, right more often than most people are about outcomes um, are still wrong most of the time um, in one way or another. Um, I, I do think it, it's pretty clear here where most of the justices stand, justices stand on the like pure statutory question, though, um, regarding federal courts in 1331. I mean, I, I think this one, um, I, I would not be surprised to see it come out in favor of Axon. Certainly, I think it'd be a lot more interesting too to see what kind of concurrences are written along with this, um, which might be where you could see them exploring some of those broader questions about what's going on at the FTC, calling into question whether or not these internal proceedings should be hearing um, any cases that are not directly within the statutory authority of the commission, which um, is an interesting question right now as the FTC is broadening its scope to um, enforce Section 5 and take on other agency actions that are arguably not within its statutory authority. I, you know, I, I agree that uh, making predictions is something that if any of us was really good at it, we wouldn't be in the jobs we have now. Uh, we'd be in the stock market uh, as, as investors. Um, I, I think that it looks like the court is leaning toward letting the case go forward, letting the challenge go forward. For me, the interesting question is, how do you write them? Because you heard different justices make different suggestions. And if you go back to Thunder Bay, uh, interestingly in Thunder Bay, uh, Justice Scalia has a special concurrence there, which says basically, I don't care if there's irreparable harm or not irreparable harm. I, I think that there are issues that just don't go forward unless you go through the whole process. And, and Justice Thomas joined with Justice Lee in that. And so the question is, um, how much reservation is there 
about letting the ordinary case go forward? How do you write it up so you distinguish this from the ordinary case? How do you let important structural questions go forward on, on which the agency has nothing to add, on which there is, is nothing that the agency will do? And it's not as if you have um, a, an officious interloper who just says, I have an idea. It's not like this is a project for a class at a law school to challenge this. This is a real issue for real companies that have this problem on their plate. Axon is such a company. It's not a question of standing the usual sense. So I, I think the court will find a way, but I'm interested in saying exactly what grounds they articulate distinguish this from the run-of-the-mill case. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, definitely several of the justices were struggling with how to how does Axon's case stack up with other cases? You know, several of them asked about the differences between Axon and free enterprise, for instance. So definitely they're looking at, okay, if there is a rule, how does a rule apply? And are there ways we can, principled ways that we can, you know, distinguish between Axon's case and, you know, in your words, Dean Cass, you know, the run of the mill case. Um, so I think I think that, that's certainly a struggle. So here's where I, I come in with my other sort of FTC specific uh, observation, which is I do think that Axon in one sense anyway, may not be the perfect case to decide this because Axon's, you know, what they call the clearance of black box claim is it's unique, right? It's unique in a sense that Axon actually has an alternative, a concrete alternative to point to. Look, we could have been sued by DOJ and we could have been before an article three judge right away. And that's what you're denying us, right? So I think most litigants may not have that. They, they may have other claims about kind of the legit legitimacy of the administrative process, but they're not gonna have this concrete alternative. Um, and so in that respect, you know, Axon may be difficult, may, may, may require more work to distinguish or to, or to kind of harmonize with the other fact patterns that are out there. Interesting. So. Kind of going to the question on kind of um, how this might impact administrative litigation at the FTC going forward. Henry, you mentioned that um, there are other cases out there where they also might have uh, otherwise have the choice to go before DOJ if it wasn't for this alleged black box clearance process. It's the Jewel Altria case and the Lumina Grail case. So I, I wonder in particular how this case might impact those cases as they are going through the administrative litigation process at the FTC. Um, so actually, maybe I'll start with you and then um, Dean Katz and Henry, just, just query on, on the pathway forward for those cases in light of the Axon case. Well, to be, to be honest with you, I am struggling with what to say about Jewel Altria and um, and Illumina Grail, right? Because I mean, well, certainly Illumina, Illumina Grail, the FTC lost, right? So it kind of cuts against the argument that, well, we don't like ALJs because they're under the, you know, the, 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 the thumb of the commission and, you know, commission always wins when you have an ALJ. That's not true. Uh, that's not what happened in Illumina Grail. Uh, and, and then my other point would be, if you look at section five, the final product, the final agency product that is reviewed by an appellate court is the, is a commission's 
opinion. It's not the ALJ's opinion. And the commission, actually, the standard is de novo review when it reviews an ALJ's you know, initial decision. So query whether it really does anything to some, to some of these pending cases. I mean, certainly the claims haven't been raised. That's one thing. But again, at the end of the day, these are commission opinions that are being reviewed. And so I struggle with kind of answering your question about what it does to other, you know, uh, FTC cases. Now, I will have another point that I, I'll reserve for later, but but um, that's what I would say. I, I thought Henry was going to say that the uh, Jewel case went up in smoke, but I, I guess he had a different take on it. Well, I the, like your choice the, of words. In the Altria Jewel case, the ALJ actually ruled in favor of the parties and against the agency, and now oh. that case is a, a being appealed to the full commission. Um, Ashley, did you want to opine on kind of the ramifications of this case for others in administrative litigation? Sure. So, I mean, I would say we probably won't get a decision on this case either until like seven months from now. And you know, those those cases, um, both are on their way to being appealed before the commission. Um, one has already been heard. I mean, I think we'll have a um, some sort of answer on, on what the commission decides. Um, as you said, the commissioner, the commission itself does ultimately decide and not the ALJ. We should probably have that well before we would have an opinion here. However, I do think that there are broader implications for just any of the litigation regarding the agencies. So as the justices are considering Axon and they're considering Cochrane, they're also considering these procedures and processes and saying, hey, wait, the ALJ just ruled against the commission and complainant authorized not once but twice for the first time in 25 years um, in the past couple of months. Um, what's the point of even having this internal process? And that's outside the scope of the question, but that doesn't mean that we couldn't see some sort of, um, you know, concurring opinion, um, some sort of commentary on that. Although it, it, it is odd that when a case raises the fact that nobody has, that the uh, commission has not had an adverse ruling in 25 years, and you get two while these cases are pending, before the courts, people may look at it as something that has at least a little bit of strategy to it. But that may not explain what's going on actually at the agency, but I think that will be something that people will be at least a little suspicious of. But also you have this in the context of changes at the agency itself that make the agency much more aggressive along a number of margins than it has been um, in my lifetime. And um, which goes back longer than anybody else is here. Uh, so I, I think there are a lot of things that will cause people to be skeptical about what the agency is doing and how it's doing it. And you'll have a lot more hard look at agency procedures with the FTC than you have had for quite some time. Yeah, I, I have to agree with that. Certainly, we, we've seen the motions for recusal, for instance. Right, um, because we have we do have a very aggressive agency right now. So so def, it's not that you know these these kinds of claims won't be considered. That's for sure. I, I think it may be Svetlana that there is more uh, impact on what's happening elsewhere than there will be even on what's happening at the at the FTC, because if you look right now. Uh, there are a lot of cases that are going through the process of, of being filed, being constructed, uh, 
uh, being reviewed in court that challenge the adjudicative processes at a variety of different agencies. You have the FTC, you have the SEC, you had the companion case, the Cochrane case, uh, argued the same day in the Supreme Court. You have challenges being made to the agency interpretation of the scope of their own authority, to the agency's uh, ability to actually have deference on its construction of its own jurisdiction. A lot of different margins are going on at once. And I think you see a lot of that driven by the Supreme Court's skepticism about the procedures that uh, have been used at agencies and the nature of the appointment processes at different agencies. I agree. And I would just add to that too. I think you'll see more defendants just bringing cases in federal court challenging the constitutionality of the agency and the processes, uh, given how um, aggressive both the FTC and the SEC, as well as these other agencies and cases that um, you just mentioned, given how um, aggressive they've been in their enforcement actions, particularly, um, I, I think we could see that and it'll probably create a little bit of a mess, I think, at first, too. I and mean, there are a lot um, of these cases. Yeah, and there's certainly a lot of challenges right now to the FTC in terms of both the administrative litigation and other, um, the, just the constitutionality of the structure of the agency. You have the Walmart uh, motion to dismiss in that case, among others. Um, Henry, I don't know if we, we got to hear from you on your prediction on um, where, how the Supreme Court might rule in this case, given your earlier stint as the uh, FTC's uh, chief litigator. I want to get your sense on where you think the Supreme Court will go here. Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think it's likely that the court, the majority of the court, will decide in favor of Axon, in favor of this kind of challenge. My only concern or caveat is I do think that Axon's claim is quite different because at least for its, you know, black box clearance claim, there really is an alternative. They can really say, look, if we weren't, if we had our druthers, we would be before an Article Three judge right now, right? And that's what they want. They don't want to be before some illegitimately appointed administrative law judge. And so I think that's what they have that other litigants won't have, which is this clear alternative. Uh, we, you know, we could have been sued by DOJ. We could have been uh, you know, in federal court instead. And Doug, I guess I'll go ahead and make my, my second point here now, or I don't know a second, third point, but which is, I think, you know, from the standpoint of merger litigation, which is what we've been talking about with the Axon case, with Altria, with Illumina, right? The, the FTC is a is an, a law enforcement agency through and through, just like DOJ. And there really shouldn't be any procedural distinction between the two of them. And that's why, I, you know, I, I've always thought that the Smarter Act uh, proposed by Senator, you know, uh, Lee, Senator Grassley is a great idea. Why, why do we have a different route for parties if they you know draw the FTC and I really think that that would solve a lot of the problems because there's no there's simply no no reason why the FTC can't litigate this in federal court and indeed when I was a trial lawyer for the commission we litigated one of our merger cases you know in the district of Idaho before the article three judge and so there's really no compelling reason to go through that administrative process 
Yeah, what I found interesting in the Altria Jewel case, I think just last week, the, the commission ordered the, the parties to brief whether the claim should be um, analyzed under the per se rule versus the rule of reason, which was the theory that was tried before the ALJ. So it's interesting how that works in process in terms of switching legal theories while the case is on appeal from a decision from the ALJ that ruled in favor of the parties. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to opine on kind of the procedural issues there or kind of um, kind of why, why you think the FTC made that request of the parties in, in that case. Don't all jump in at once. Henry, I, any thoughts on that or, or Dean Cass? I'll, I'll let Henry uh, jump in on this. I think he's I, I don't have any specific thoughts about that um, other than that, you know, again, you know, the final product that gets reviewed is the commission's decision. And so I do think there are things the commission can do as part of its own internal review process to address problems with what it views to be a defective ALJ product. And I, you know, I don't, I don't think it completely solves the constitutional problem, the, the double cause removal problem, but, you know, keep in mind again, that what is reviewed is a, a an opinion from, you know, a commission that's been, you know, constitutionally created at least for now, right? Also, when I put out earlier that courts um, and Supreme Court might start to think about whether or not the FCC should be reviewing any of these cases that are at all outside of their statutory authority, one thing that I specifically had in mind was the policy statement on Section 5, which um, tries to kind of redefine what the boundaries are there, and um, they're um, very, very broad, <laughs> to sum it up, um, much broader than before, and, uh, you know, just looking at it as a matter of, you know, strict statutory interpretation, I mean, things such as, you know, does this violate the spirit of the antitrust laws? A lot of these are, I mean, it's very vague, it's very indirect, it's it's very much um, out there in terms of um, where exactly the text is versus where that policy statement says it is. <laughs> You also have a host of other issues that are coming up in terms of both the standard of deference that's used in interpretation and the ability of Congress, even if you're interpreting a law right, the ability of Congress to give certain issues uh, under certain instructions to agencies. And I think we'll see more challenges of that sort, uh, not only in the antitrust area, not only in the area of the FTC and DOJ, but also in a variety of other statutes and other agencies. Indeed. So we have just a few moments left. I just wanted to give each of the panelists one last word on um, key takeaways or where we go from here or things that you're looking forward to um, in the admin law space, FTC space going forward. So um, Dean Katz, I'll start with you. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing the way the, uh, the court resolves this issue, but also the, the issues about the appointment of adjudicators at the agencies, about the way agencies do adjudication, about whether there ought to be uh, a, an issue that if there is an option of going to court, goes to court, whether there are certain issues that just no matter what ought to end up in court, that there isn't, you know, it's one thing if you're uh, taking care of somebody who has violated rules about how to use a national park 
and people are looking at whether the rules were drawn the right way, whether they were complied with or not. It's another thing when you're talking about uh, potentially criminal penalties, because the antitrust laws do have potentially criminal penalties behind them. And you're talking about major interference with the operation of large parts of American industry or American life. And I think we will see time and again now that the courts will take a much harder look at what sort of authority can be given to agencies to oversee those things. Ashley, how about you? Sure. So I, I also, I'll be looking forward to how exactly the court, particularly the majority, decides to address this, but also because that's going to, I feel like, set um, the groundwork for there. I mean, there are so many other administrative law cases um, coming through the pipeline that the court could grant um, that would be heard next term. I mean, there's the there's a challenge to ALJs, there's um, potential Chevron challenge, there's um, an appointments clause challenge, and I think they're probably going to grant at least one of those, most likely. Um, and there are circuit splits in several of those cases. So um, I think that whoever writes this opinion might be doing so with that in mind. Henry, how about you? Yeah, no, I know. I I don't disagree that there are, you know, lots of challenges from different corners to kind of the, the the you know the scope, the breadth, the power wielded by the administrative state. And as Dean Cass says, you know, it has become this, you know, entity that has had has so much power over our lives uh, that you know they I think you know people are responding to that. Um, I think, though, looking just at the FTC, I go back to kind of, you know, what I've always thought about the FTC, which is it's really not like a regulatory agency like the FCC. You know, uh, it is a law enforcement agency, more like DOJ. And, you know, at least I, I, I kind of envision that maybe that through all this, after all the dust settles, we still have a law enforcement agency that has, you know, some is able to, you know, kind of carry out these important missions of competition and consumer protection, uh, you know, and maybe maybe doesn't do a lot of rulemaking, for instance, that is much more, you know, undemocratic. And, uh, you know, so. All righty. Um, I may have to quote you on the undemocratic on the rulemaking, given that there's now a preference for rulemaking over law enforcement, but we could talk offline about that. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCOTUScast. SCOTUScast is a project of the Federalist Society, a not-for-profit educational organization of conservative and libertarian law students, law professors, and lawyers, founded upon the principles that the state exists to preserve freedom, that the separation of governmental powers is central to our Constitution, and that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast series, including SCOTUScast and Practice Group Podcasts, on iTunes or Google Play. For an archive of past podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at fedsoc.org multimedia. That's F-E-D-S-O-C dot multimedia. This has been a FedSoc audio production.